Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Thad Forrester, and I've got author, veteran, podcast host, Gold Star brother, etc., father, husband, Scott Deluzio with us today. Hey, Scott, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to come on your show. First thing is, a little while ago, I was looking at Instagram, and I saw your little post here about strange... <laughs> This is Luke. Stranger, thank you for your service. Me, you don't know how to respond. So tell me about, you know, about that. Well, I think it's actually kind of a common thing amongst veterans is uh, we kind of feel like we don't know how to respond to that. It's like, you know, we, we didn't do it. We didn't sign up for the military for any sort of thanks or praise or anything like that. Well, most people, may, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but, um, you know, we, we did it just because it's like the thing that you do. It's you serve your country and you go out and you do this thing. And when you're done, you, you walk away and, and that's that. But then there are these people and I'm, trust me, I'm grateful that we have these people who are out there who are supportive of the military and veterans and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they, they, they come around, they shake your hand that, you know, thank you for your service, especially around veterans day and, and uh, other holidays like that memorial day and, and all that kind of stuff and they they come around thanking you for your service and it's like well i, I was just kind of doing my job i i wasn't really doing anything special but you know to everyone else it seems like it's special so i don't know it's it's like a hard thing to be able to answer uh, or to respond to i should say when when someone comes up to you like that because it's you know what do you say thank you uh you know yeah I don't know. It's it's hard. I don't know. But I, I actually on that that post, I got a lot of responses that were uh, <laughs> what people say, what they they actually use as their response and uh, kind of help me out, kind of form my own uh, response for the future when when I get get those kind of uh, situations. Yeah, there were some good ones there. I, I liked those, too. I agree with those. Yeah. You're clear in your book that you're very grateful for the support from our country. And but there was a period in your time that we'll get to in just a little bit about where you didn't want to hear that, you know, when you're escorting your brother's body home. So I think we'll probably talk about that. Several months ago, I was thinking I really wanted to talk to a gold star brother again. And I haven't had many gold star brothers on my podcast. I've had, I've had some sisters I've, I've had parents and mm -hmm. and wives, but I haven't had many gold star brothers. And I was like, man, I want to talk to one again. And I just don't talk to that many. And so I believe it was Josh White, you know, from Hero Front Podcast, who introduced me to you, I think. And then I believe if I have it right, you were on his podcast before you were on Pick Up the Six podcast. Josh is a great guy. He, you know, we we uh, had a, had a good chat when uh, when I was on his podcast, and um, we were fortunate enough to get introduced. And you know, here we are. So, yeah, I bought your book. Yeah. So you and your brother Stephen are both served. Tell me about you. You joined the the Army National Guard, and why did you do that? And and you enlisted when you didn't have right. to. So and, and why did you? What was your thinking behind that? Also. Yeah. So first off, uh, so my brother, he, he's younger. He was uh, about three years younger than than I was. And he joined the military first. Uh, he started going to school up at a school called Norwich University up in Vermont. Um, it's the oldest uh, ROTC uh, program in the country. That's basically where ROTC program was was uh, started. Uh, that's my understanding anyways. And And so he started going there he met a guy who was in the national guard up there. Um, his intention was not to join the military until after college, but, uh, he met a guy who was, was in the national guard 
And he's like, oh, this sounds cool. I, I could do this part time and still go to school and all that kind of stuff. And so he ended up joining the National Guard. And in our, our upbringing, we were a very patriotic family. We grew up respecting the military and law enforcement and everything. Basically, anyone put a uniform on to go sacrifice themselves for somebody else. Like It, it was just like those were our superheroes growing up. And then, you know, all of a sudden my little brother became the superhero. And I was like, holy crap, I'm, I'm super proud of this this guy, right? Um, you know, my, my biggest regret, I think in life is not really expressing that to him because I, I don't think I ever told him how, how, uh, proud of him I was for making that decision. About a year and a half or so later, I heard a report in the news saying that the military was struggling to meet their, uh, recruiting numbers for the year. What year are we and talking about, Scott? So this was 2005, uh, was, was the year that, that we're talking about here. Uh, he joined in 2004, and and so to, sometime in 2005, I forget the exact time frame right now, but uh, sometime in 2005, I heard that the military was struggling to meet their recruiting numbers, and, and this is only a few years after 9/11, when you know that the whole surge of patriotism, everybody was was ready to go, you know, kick down some doors and and get some payback for what took place on 9/11, and I started getting a little upset, like where are all these people who? we're ready to drop everything to go fight against, uh, you know, this, this enemy who attacked us. And then I realized, well, I'm one of those people and I still hadn't done anything about it. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm still young enough. I'm fit. I'm, I'm perfectly capable. I have no reason not to join the military other than poor excuses. Why not me? It, it was really my, my attitude. It's like, why not join the military? And so, um, at the time I, I had just started my, first job out of college and I felt like I would be it would be kind of rude of me to just up and leave and go join the military uh full time active duty if uh you know these people just they just hired me they they spent a bunch of time and en energy training me and and doing all this kind of stuff with me um it seemed like it would just be the wrong idea so I was like okay well the national guard I knew a little bit about that because my brother had just joined it uh the year before I was like well that's something I could do part time and I, I could do it on the weekends. I don't work on the weekends. So that, that just works out pretty well. And so that's what I ended up doing is, uh, is doing that, um, allowed me to stay close to home, uh, you know, in, in my hometown and keep the job that I had been working at. Um, and as far as enlisting versus, uh, going the officer route, which I had a college degree at that time, I was, uh, qualified to be able to go the officer route. Um, but like I said before, I was so proud of my younger brother for joining first. Uh, and he was enlisted. He didn't have his degree uh, at that point. I didn't want to do anything that was going to uh, minimize his service in any way, shape or form. I didn't want to ever outrank him and make him feel like, you know, he was less of a soldier than I was or, or anything like that. And not that that would necessarily be the case. I just was respectful of him and I, I didn't want to do that to him. So, um, you know, I, I enlisted and because I had a college degree, I did start off a little bit higher ranking than uh, other uh, enlisted soldiers normally are. But when I got in and uh, he had just gotten back from Iraq, we both were at the same rank and we continued to stay at the same rank pretty much the rest of our, our time in the military. So that kind of worked out for us. What was y'all's relationship like growing up and then as adults while you were serving? At the end of the day, we were pretty much best friends. We did most everything together. We went out and played together. We were in the backyard, uh, throwing the baseball, 
doing, doing whatever, riding our bikes around the neighborhood and stuff like that. We do all that stuff together um, for the most part growing up. And when we got older, uh, after I graduated basic training and he got back from Iraq, at the time we were both living in my parents' house and we both moved out together. Uh, we got a condo together and we we split that and we, we were living together for several years until I met my wife. Um, and I don't want to say I kicked him out, but he was more than welcome to stay, but it would, it would have been a little, uh, little uncomfortable for him to, to stick around there. So, um, he, he decided to, to go move in with some buddies at that point. But, but yeah, I mean, we, we just, we did a lot of stuff together. I mean, we, we'd go to, to hockey games. We were, we were both Bruins fans, Boston Bruins fans. So we'd drive up to Boston on, on the weekend and, and go catch a game and everything and, and race some hell up there. And, uh, it was, it was just a lot of fun and we, we had a good time together. So that, that's kind of, you know, how, how we were. And, 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 uh, you know, it wasn't like we were inseparable. Like we always, we had our own, each had our own friends and, and stuff like that, but you know, we did a lot of stuff together and we enjoyed each other's company. You do tell some funny stories about y'all, you know, with, with, with things and, and his, you highlight his personality. I imagine yours is probably similar, but what kind of roommate was he? Cause I live, my, me and my brother lived together too, as adults. And, um, and when he left to, to join the military, I realized, man, you really need two people to run it. Cause I had a house yeah. and you know, there's a lot of stuff to do. And I'd get home from work after working late. I have a buddy of mine that wanted to, to do something. Look, I got to do some laundry. I got to cut grass. And did Steven pull his weight? Yes. And no, we realized that uh, we weren't the neatest people, uh, <laughs> you know, growing up, we, we kind of leaned on my mom to, to kind of help us out where, where we would, uh, <laughs> where we would, have some uh some gaps in our cleanliness uh if you will um you know fortunately we had a, a condo and all like the yard work and all that kind of stuff was taken care of for us it was like kind of a common area around our our house so uh so we didn't have to cut the grass or anything like that but but still just you know general cleaning up and stuff like that i remember one day walking by his room and i, I peeked in and there were like dishes on the floor that were just like piled up like he, he brought dinner up into his room. He was like watching TV or something in his room and he just left the dishes there. And it's like, well, no wonder we don't have any clean dishes. They're all in your room. Like, this is disgusting. Like get, yeah. get the stuff out of here and go clean it. I'm like, oh, fine, I'll go do it. You know, but you know, so we'd get on each other's nerves a little bit about that kind of stuff, but, but it was just like to keep the house running really. Yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't just let things pile up like that. There, there was one other time when I don't know what it was, but I was in the, the grocery store. I don't know what triggered me to do this, but I, um, there's these ice cream sandwiches. And I was like, I just want to have these. I like, I, I really wanted them. Uh, so I went to the grocery store. I bought them. I brought them home. I had someplace else to be. I was like, when I get back, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to devour this whole box. Cause I, I just, I just want these things. And I got back and he was throwing away the last wrapper in the garbage can. As I walked <laughs> in the door, I was like, what the hell did you just do? It's like I, that was for me. I wanted those, and uh, he's like, "Oh, sorry, man." You know, but you know, so we we had little little things like that. But it was it was looking back on it, it's kind of funny. You know, at the time, I was like, "What? The, oh man, I, I could kill you right now." But yeah, you know, it's it's just those little things, and you know, overall, we had a great time. Well, let's talk about your last meal. Now, I think this is a Camp Atterbury. So y'all yep. were um, both deploying. Or was he already there in country and y'all just happened to meet up or how, how did that go? And and then, you know, and I'm just wondering, looking back, did you have any inclination that that might be your last? We were both in Camp Atterbury, which is in Indiana. And that was where we went for some pre-deployment 
training and paperwork, a lot of like the medical stuff that you have to do, you go through there uh, to make sure yeah, that you're yeah. physically yeah. fit and all that kind of stuff. So you, you do all that stuff. We we're there for for a few weeks and, and everything and going through all the stuff that we have to do, you know, weapons qualifications, make sure you know how to shoot and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you should know how to shoot anyways, but uh, just qualifying you to make sure that, that you're, you're up to the date on all that stuff. And the last day that my unit was there. So we were in two separate units. He was in the Vermont army national guard. I was in the Connecticut army national guard and um, we fell under the same brigade, which the whole brigade was being deployed at the same time. Um, and so that's why we were deploying together. Our unit was about to leave to go off uh, someplace else for some additional training. And we were not coming back to Camp Atterbury. And so we had a lot of admin type stuff. We had to pack up all of our equipment and all that kind of stuff. That that was basically our day. And so we missed our dinner time slot. Like each each unit had their own slot for when you're assigned to go to dinner. So me and a couple other guys from my unit, we decided to go after we're done with all the stuff that we needed to do, we decided to go sneak off to the chow hall and and grab some food. Well, it just so happened to be the same time that my brother's unit was in there and he saw me walking in and he called me over and he, he told me to come sit with him and his, his guys. And because we were, we we're moving out, I had this backpack, they call them assault packs in the, the military. And I had all sorts of crap strapped to this, the outside of this backpack because it just wouldn't fit on the inside of that bag or any of the other bags I had. I had like, you know, shoes and pillow and, and different things like that all strapped to the outside of it. But anyway, so, so I sit down and I have all this crap strapped to, to the outside of this backpack and he starts just giving me crap about how I look like a hobo, how um, I, I look like I, I've been living out on the streets for the last you know, year or something. Cause I, I just got all this crap strapped to my back and everything. And he's, he's just making fun of me and everything, but that's kind of the relationship that we had. We'd always just like <laughs> just rag on each other and, and try to get under each other's skin. Like, like you find one little thread and we're, we're just going to pull until it, yeah. it like comes undone. Right. But we also had the kind of relationship where if anybody else started giving me crap, like any of his other guys get, gave me crap, he would have been jumping down their throat and just tearing them a new one because it's like no this is my brother i get to say this you should sit there and shut up like you don't get to say this to him you know mm -hmm. so it, it was that kind of uh a relationship so it but it, it was funny and it was a good time uh that that we had we we kind of sat there we laughed we joked afterwards we got up and uh you know said our our goodbyes i was like yeah i'm, I'm headed out i'm not sure exactly how long i'm going to be left in, in country before heading out to Afghanistan. So it's like, you know, this, this is goodbye. So we said goodbye. I, I had no in, inclination that that would be our last time seeing each other. Um, didn't realize that it would be the last meal that we had together. Like, I don't think I would have left that table if I knew mm -hmm. that that would be the last time I would have seen him. In the, the back of my mind, I sort of just blocked out that possibility that one of us may not make it home. I don't know that I would have been able to do my job if I was constantly worried about him and his safety, because there's nothing I really could do about it anyways. Um, we were stationed far enough apart that we never saw each other while we were over there. And there really wasn't anything I could do. So I think I just blocked that possibility out of my mind so that I could focus on my job and keep myself safe. It's really the only thing I had control over. How many deployments did you have? 
I had just the one deployment uh, to Afghanistan. My, okay. my brother had two deployments. Okay. He, he deployed to Iraq and then later on to Afghanistan. You were not a pencil pusher. You were you, you had a job out there, there at the Afghanistan-Pakistani border, I believe. We talk about mm -hmm. what you and your unit did there. Yeah. So our primary mission, uh, we were right, like you said, right on the, the Afghan-Pakistan border. Where we were stationed was uh, an area where about I want to say it was about 80% of NATO supplies would come through from Pakistan into Afghanistan. And the reason why is because Afghanistan is a landlocked country. And so a lot of the supplies were sent over on cargo ships and the closest port is in Pakistan. And so the cargo would get offloaded in Pakistan, put on trucks and driven into Afghanistan. And so our job was to secure the border region where these trucks would be driving through um, because without those trucks coming through, we'd end up almost being crippled as far as our, our supplies go. We we would be missing out on you know things like uniforms and other non-lethal type supplies. We, it wasn't necessarily ammo or bombs or anything like that coming through there. It was other things like that. So, well, Scott, um, were you there to to keep terrorists from stopping those things from coming through, or were you also there to keep? known bad guys from coming through too and bringing, bringing over illegal weapons and things. Was it all of that? It was all of that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, so the way it worked was we'd, we'd be there uh, at the border. We were not allowed into Pakistan uh, at all. The, the, actually the Pakistani military had troops right on the border and, and they would come right up to the line. And, and if we so much as step one foot over, they'd push us back or you know hit us with the butt, butt of their rifles or whatever. One of the guys that I served with actually got clocked in the head with with the butt of a, a rifle from one of the Pakistani soldiers. So you know, we were not allowed to cross into their their country. But our job was to not only secure the area for the the vehicles, but we also had uh, like biometric screening. And we would use that and take a random sample of the people who are crossing the border on foot or even by vehicles, uh, take a random sample of them and check them out, see if they were known terrorists. You mean like with finger... a swab from their mouth or something? Uh, no. So it was uh, it, it was fingerprint uh, readings. It was uh, iris scanning. Uh, and okay. there was something else and I'm forgetting it now, but the, we, so we did those kind of, kind of screenings. And, and so like, for example, if a, if a terrorist had left their fingerprints on a bomb and it was discovered after a bomb went off, they, they do do all the forensic testing and all that kind of stuff. It gets put into this database and we had basically that database with us. We'd scan their fingerprints. And if that came up as a positive, we would detain them on the spot and, uh, and, uh, bring them out to whoever it was that would end up questioning and interrogating them and finding out all the information that they had. Um, so that, that was part of our job was to find those people, but it was also to make sure that, you know, weapons and other materials like that were not coming across the border into Afghanistan because it was such a major border crossing area. Um, it, it, thousands of people every day would, would cross through this area. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a high touch area for us to, to be in and, and it allowed us to uh, stop a lot of that stuff from, actually entering the country. Yeah. Would you say that your lowest points prior to Stephen were when you almost shot that kid and then the the handicapped old man? Yeah. So that was really rough time because um, just to set it up for the listeners who uh, may not know the story, 
there was a, a situation where we were at the border and there was this this truck it was basically like what you would see a, a dump truck around here as far as like how it was designed and there was a kid probably 10 to 12 years old it was hard to judge how old this kid was who stood up in the back like where where all the dirt and stuff in a dump truck would be uh he stood up in the back of that and he pointed what appeared to me and i was about 50 or so yards away at this point pointed what appeared to me to be a rifle like an ak-47 at my soldiers who were down below and unless they were looking straight up they wouldn't have seen him and so I raised my rifle and I was about to shoot this kid because I didn't want him to kill my guys. And it wasn't until the very last second I had already started. Like I felt the pressure on my finger on the trigger. I had started pulling the trigger when I realized it was just a piece of wood that this kid was holding. It wasn't an actual rifle. It was carved to look kind of like a, a rifle, but it wasn't, it was, it was all wood. Yeah. I, I almost killed that kid that day. Yeah, he did something stupid, but he didn't necessarily need to die because of that. And Mm -hmm. so um, that kind of screwed with me because I felt like prior to that moment, I was the type of person who would do just about anything to protect an innocent child. Um, You know, someone who is young and and needs protecting, I I would do just about anything up to and including giving my life to protect a child and here i was pointing a rifle with the safety off finger on the trigger i'm ready to kill this kid and it sort of rocked my view of who i was you know am i really this kind of protector i'm, I'm about to kill a kid here is that really who i am and so it had me questioning quite a bit about myself uh, about what type of person i actually was and then there was an, another incident where there was a guy who he had something going on going on with him i don't know exactly what it was he was he was deaf and mentally handicapped in some way. I, I don't know exactly what it was. And he was entering into a restricted area. We we closed it off to pedestrian like foot traffic. And he just started walking right into the area. And so I did all the things that we were supposed to do. I even had our interpreter telling him, get out of here. You're not supposed to be here. And he just kept walking through this area. And the thing that that first went through my mind was this guy probably has a bomb strapped to his chest or something. He's about to blow himself up in the middle of this area where he wasn't supposed to be. I'm like, he's going to kill me uh, for sure because I'm I'm standing right next to him. But at the time, I was like, okay, I need to get him at least far enough away from anybody else that he's not going to kill them too. Then something came over me and it's like, there's something just not right about this guy's reaction. Whenever someone, if you're standing three, four, five feet away from someone and someone's screaming at you, like barking orders at you. doesn't matter if you understand the language or not. There's going to be some sort of reaction. You're going to look at the person, right? You're going to, you're going to move. You're going to react in some way. There was none of that. It was like, nobody was home. The lights were off. No one was home with this guy. And I was like, what? Something just doesn't feel right. And while I probably would have been perfectly justified in shooting this guy, something told me don't shoot him something is just not right and turns out he was deaf he did not he didn't hear anything that i was saying or the interpreter was saying he also had some mental uh, handicaps as well so he didn't even understand that what he was doing was something that was wrong my god i'm i'm just so glad that that little voice inside my head told me not to shoot because you know i i would have i would have felt horrible about killing this man who 
was deaf. He was mentally handicapped. He had a lot of issues going on. He didn't deserve to die either. He just, he was lost. He was confused. He didn't know where he was supposed to be or not supposed to be. You know, that could have been a, a pretty bad situation. But that's, those are stories that people need to hear. I mean, these are tough decisions that y'all have to make tough under a tight diet deadline with many, many lives on the line. And so uh, I can't imagine what that's like. And yeah, if you had a shot him and if you had a shot, the kid, I mean, technically you, you did everything you were supposed to do. <clears throat> I imagine it's shaking you up, no doubt, but yeah, I guess it could have been, it could have been worse if you, if you had have gone through, but I think it's important for people to hear stories like that. Yeah. And, and part of the, the reason too, why, you know, a lot of people just, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking the, the situation be like, Oh, I would have just shot him. You know, who cares? Just shoot him. You, you were justified. You could do that. But if you think about it too, in the, the context of the country that we were in and the, the people that were, were in this country, um, we were trying to gain their support. Um, and you don't do that by killing their kids. You don't gain support by killing a mentally handicapped man. You, you don't get mm-hmm. support that way. And so it, while, yeah, I could have shot both of those people and probably been perfectly justified in both of those situations in doing that, it wouldn't have gone over very well. And, and the local people uh, in that area, they, they would have probably started to rise up and fight against us. And that would have caused an even worse situation for us and potentially even caused more Americans to be put in danger uh, than, than needed to be. So, uh, you know, all of these decisions are not made lightly. They're, they're decisions that are made with long-term effects in mind as mm-hmm. well. Well, let's go to uh, August 22nd, 2010. Will you describe what you, how you found out? Well, you've described this a lot. So just, just tell whatever detail you want about how you found out about Stephen's death and what you were doing and at least go into some of the feelings that you had immediately after. The day that my brother was killed, um, we were just like every other day in Afghanistan. We were not together. We were, we were off on separate missions. Uh, he was off doing his thing. I was off doing my thing. And our mission was we we're in some remote village. We flew out the night before on helicopters, uh, landed on a mountaintop outside of this village. And as we were there conducting operations with uh, the Afghan army, who at the time had no night vision capabilities at all. So if we wanted to work our way down the mountain to get into this village, we had to wait till till the sun came up, basically. Um so we were there, we we're doing our thing throughout the day and going through the, the village, uh, looking for Taliban activity and, and everything. And and that, that's basically what our, our job was. So I, I was on my, I had my my mission focus right then. I, I wasn't even thinking necessarily about my brother or anything like that. I was thinking about getting this job done and making sure that all my guys come home safe and, and that what we are there to do is uh, done to the best of our abilities. And... Later on during that day, I got a call on the radio saying that our commanding officer was looking for me. And for the listeners who may or may not know about the chain of command, um, you know, I, I was an enlisted guy. Um, the commanding officer doesn't typically look for uh, any of the enlisted guys unless something really good happened or something really bad happened. And I had just done my job that day. I had not done anything extraordinary. I wasn't winning any awards for any any of the work that I had done that day. So 
immediately my mind went to, oh crap, what's going on now? Like something got screwed up. I was thinking maybe my one of my guys lost some sense of equipment, like their night vision goggles or a scope on their their weapon or something like that. I don't know what it was. I I was just running through the list of all the things that possibly could have gone wrong. I couldn't figure it out. So eventually I linked up with the commanding officer and he told me to to come over to this area kind of away from everybody else. Uh, it, was, it was behind some some trees and rocks and stuff like that. Um, and he told me to t- take my helmet off and take a knee. And that was the second red flag for me because when you're outside the wire, no one ever tells you to take your helmet off. As a matter of fact, they're, they're adamant that you keep it on. Um, but he was like, yeah, take your helmet off. Wasn't there some fighting going on already prior to At that? At that point, no, there, there, okay. we hadn't actually gotten into any uh, firefights or anything like that up until that point. Okay. Um, and so as far as we knew, it was a relatively safe area. We had just gone through the village the Afghan army, the way it worked was uh, the Afghan army was supposed to take the lead. They were the ones searching all the houses. We were there. Uh, I, I make this analogy of uh, kind of like a driver's ed instructor. While you have the student who's behind the wheel actually doing the driving, but the driver's ed instructor has the, that that brake pedal uh, on, on, the, on their side, just in case things get a little out of hand. So we were kind of like the driver's ed instructor where, where if things got out of hand, we, we were there to support them. But they were the ones who were doing all the driving and, and they were the ones going through the houses, looking for weapons, looking for different things that, that they, they had on their list that they, they were supposed to be looking for. And so as far as we knew, the village was secured. We went through all the, the houses and we, we had uh, captured all the, the weapons and everything like that from there. So, and we did it with, without a shot being fired. So that was pretty good, uh, a pretty good day in, in terms of, uh, you know, military days. You, you don't want to get into firefights necessarily um, if, if you can avoid it at all, at all costs. So, um, so as far as we were concerned, it was a relatively safe, secure area because we had just cleared all those houses. Um, so he told me to take a knee, take my helmet off. And uh, I'm like, something's got to be up here because why would he have me take my helmet off? But I did what he, he said. And I, I, I was there and, and he told me that my brother's unit was ambushed and that my brother had gotten hit. And again, going back to what we were talking about before, I still, up until that point, I never really entertained the possibility that my brother might be seriously injured or killed. And so at that point, my mind did not go to he's dead. My mind went to, oh, okay, well, he's hurt. He probably is in a hospital somewhere uh, in Afghanistan and, and maybe they're getting him prepped to go fly him out to Germany or wherever his next place is. That that was kind of my next thought. And so um, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, what are the logistics like? How do I get to him? Does he need me there for, you know, moral support to, to just be a friendly face to, to be around uh, or so that I can, I can kind of rag on him a little bit like, Hey man, you're not supposed to step in the way of those bullets or, you know, like that, that, those are the things that were going through my head. Um, You know, in worst case scenario, I was like, okay, well, I think we're the same blood type even. So if he, if he needed blood, like, like get me to him and I'll, I'll, I'll give him my blood or, you know, whatever I I have that I don't need, he can have it um, is, is basically the thought process I went through. And the commanding officer looked at me kind of strange, like, no, man, you, you don't understand this. What's actually going on? Like he's been killed right at that point. It was like getting punched in the gut. It was like all the air got sucked out of my chest. 
my whole world came crashing down around me and I, I couldn't believe the words that he was saying. I was like, no, this, that can't be like anybody else. I, I broke down. I was crying. I was, I was a complete train wreck at that point. I, I just couldn't believe it that he was gone. Didn't make any sense to me. Um, like I said, I, I hadn't inter- even entertained that thought up until that point. And here I was sitting here with my brother who was gone and I, I had no way of getting him back. Being the older brother, you know, growing up, I was the the protector. I was the one who was supposed to keep him safe. And I was like, holy crap, in the time that he needed me the absolute most throughout his whole life, I couldn't be there for him. What a terrible thing to feel at that point in time. I want to say it was about 20 minutes after finding out that he was killed. Uh, we found out that the Afghans who went through the those houses going door to door didn't do a great job at finding all the weapons because we started taking fire from the village that we just came out of. And so the grief that I was feeling, I don't want to say it went away, but it turned into anger as opposed to sadness. It turned into anger at that point. I wanted nothing more than to go and kill every single person down in that village. I I was just so angry I, it was almost like a homicidal rage that I, I felt coming over me. I realized if I was to do something stupid like that, like just run down Rambo style, guns a blazing, all that kind of crap, um, which is basically what I envisioned in my head, there's no way I was going to make it out of there alive. Uh, I, I was going to die in the process as well. And then my guys would have to go down and try to retrieve my body, which would put them in danger. And that was unnecessary too. And so I was like, okay, I just need to get my head right right now and put my personal issues aside. Uh, as much anger and hatred and everything that I have for these people, the, the people of Afghanistan, I need to put that aside and focus and do my job because I had other soldiers who were relying on me. I was, I was a squad leader at the time, so I had about 10 soldiers who I was in charge of. They were relying on me for my leadership to make sure that they – were where they needed to be, that they had the ammo that they needed, that they had everything that that they needed. That was my job. And if I was off running off doing my own thing, I was basically going to be abandoning them. And that's wasn't okay for me. You know, even if by some stroke of luck, I did manage to make it out of there alive. And one of them ended up getting killed because I wasn't there. I don't know how I would be able to look their families in the eye and say, uh, yeah, your, your son, is dead or your husband or whoever is dead because I screwed up because I couldn't keep my head on right. You know? So I, I was like, okay, there's been enough death today. We don't need this anymore. We don't need any more of this. Let's, let's get our head right and focus on what we need to do. And uh, that was basically my inner monologue talking to myself, basically saying like, get your head out of your ass and, and get out there and do it. You know? And so that's what I did. I I was still angry. I was still sad, but I was like laser focused on my job. I, I was like, the, I'm doing, I'm here to do this one job and that's, that's it. I, that's all I'm focused on. At what point did they take your gun away from you? Yeah. So I, I still had my gun um, up until, so I, I still had it. I left the battlefield. They, they had a helicopter come in and take me out of there. I still had it then. Um, as a matter of fact, I had two firearms. I had a shotgun and my uh, M4 rifle, and I, I had both of those. And 
they flew me to Bagram Air Base, the the main air base. Uh, it was in the news a lot last year when um, that was basically the last place that we had American troops uh, as they were trying to evacuate people out of there. Uh, so they they flew me there, and shortly after I landed there, they they took all of my weapons away from me, and I didn't realize it at the time, but they were probably worried about my mental state and mm -hmm. um, whether I was going to hurt myself or somebody else. Um, you know, there were, there were local Afghans who worked on the base. I may have snapped and done something stupid to one of them. I may have tried to hurt myself. Um, you know, and any number of things like that could have happened. And uh, they, they just took some preemptive measures. Not that I was suicidal or anything like that, but they didn't know because, you know, these things could just come up out of the blue, out mm -hmm. of nowhere. And, and they just wanted to be proactive and, and make sure that that didn't happen. Well, you talk a lot about the, escorting process and you know the angel flight the dignified transfer the dignified arrival and you escorted i believe you escorted steven just part of the way a little ways and they said look you yep. can't you've got to get home and you need to get home turns out it sounds like that was the that was great advice and you struggled with that and you and you didn't want to talk to anyone on the on the flight because you flew home commercially Correct. that had to be tough what what were your yep. thoughts there and why did you not want anybody to talk to you yeah, before I even left Afghanistan, they told me that I, I was not going to be able to escort him home. And, uh, you know, part of what you learn in basic training, like day one, basically, is you never leave a fallen soldier. You don't leave them, period. You do whatever you can to to bring them home. And to me, I felt like not only was I leaving a fallen soldier, but he was also my brother. And I was like, that, that just doesn't compute in my head. Like, no way can mm -hmm. this be an okay thing to do like no i am going with him the entire way home and they're like look we we can get you on the on the flight that he's leaving afghanistan on you're, you're gonna have to leave afghanistan too and all the flights are going to kuwait anyways so that's you're that's the best we can do is we you can escort him to kuwait and so i was like well this is a tough pill to swallow but i couldn't do anything else about that so so i i escorted him to kuwait and then we went our, our separate ways. And uh, the next flight out of Kuwait uh, went to Germany and then from Germany to Atlanta. And those flights uh, were, uh, they were commercial planes, but it was all military personnel on board or uh, like civilian contractors. They were all associated with okay. the war going on over there. And so all of those people who were on that, that plane, they were for the most part going home on leave or they were at the end of end of their tour and they're on their way home. Uh, for the most part, they're all happy to be going home. And I was miserable. And so I had nothing in common with any of these people. I also realized like, I don't want to be the, the downer who's like ruining their good time. They're happy to be going home to go see their families, to go, uh, you know, back to wherever they came from. And like, I don't want to be that guy who's, screwing that up for them. And so before I left Afghanistan, I met with a psychiatrist and she got me some sleeping medication to help me sleep. Cause she's like, I, I know you're probably not going to be able to sleep um, very well for the next few days at least. And so what, I, these were eight hour flights. And so I got on the plane, I, I popped the sleeping pill and I was out for the entire flight. I, I remember the takeoff and I remember the landing. That's pretty much it. When I got to Atlanta, that's the first flight that I had that didn't have the majority of it 
filled up with uh, military personnel. And I was there. I, I didn't want to talk to anybody. And in Atlanta, anybody who's ever flown through Atlanta, especially during the last 20 years while, while these wars were going on, they they know that there's all sorts of military supporters, American flags and their signs and banners, and they're, they're out there to greet you and, and everything like that. And it's like, I didn't want to even talk to anybody. I was in such a foul mood over the whole situation. I, I just wanted to be left alone. I, I didn't want any of the the praise. I didn't want any of the support. I just want, I wanted nothing. I wanted to just be invisible and just walk right through and get on the plane and go home and just be there and not have to talk to anybody the entire way. You know, looking back on it now, I feel bad because those people, they took time out of their day to come and show support. And I'm very appreciative of any kind of support uh, that, that people want to give to the military. It's just in that time, I just was not in the right place mentally to be able to uh, accept that mm-hmm. type of support, you know? And when I got on the, the flight going back to Connecticut, where, where I lived uh, from Atlanta, I was allowed to board the plane early. They, they had a, you know, first class and military personnel got to board first. And so I was able to, to board the plane first and the flight attendant came up to me and, and asked me, you know, oh, so where are you going? And just small talk kind of thing. Um, and I said, look, I appreciate what you're doing, but I would like to just be left alone. I explained the situation, how my, my brother was killed in action just a day and a half earlier. I, I just want to be left alone. And I feel like she probably communicated that to the people who were sitting next to me on, uh-huh. on that flight because they didn't say a word to me the entire way home. Normally, there's a lot of that small talk that goes on. People sit down, but they, they didn't say a single word to me. And so you know, I felt fortunate that that she was there and she was able to to take care of me like that. It was just a foul, sour feeling that I had. I just, I just didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk to people. I just, I wanted to just be left alone. Did you have your time with Steven on that flight to Kuwait or while in Kuwait, your alone time with him? During the flight, I was able to get the closest seat to where he was. So it was a, a cargo plane, a military uh, cargo yeah, plane. Yeah. Um, and, and his, uh, the box that he was in it's called a transfer case. And it was uh, this big metal box and it was strapped to the floor uh, of, of this cargo plane as if it was cargo. I mean, you, you don't want to be taken off and having a, a body sliding mm-hmm. back on, on the, the plane as it's taken off or whatever. So, so it was strapped down pretty good. Um, and I, I took the closest seat to him. I did. I just kept my eyes fixed on the, the case that he was in. I was like, I can't believe that he's dead that he's just lying there in this box <clears throat> he's so close but at the same time he was so far away like i i couldn't like yeah. I, I wanted to give him a hug i couldn't do that you know he was inside this box so after the flight to kuwait uh they they took his body and there was another soldier who was killed as well in that same firefight and they both came off of the plane uh they were loaded into the back of a truck and they were driven off and that that was the last time i saw him in Kuwait, uh, as I see him seeing, you know, the box that he was in basically, but, but the last time I was with him while we were in Kuwait until yeah. the next time I, I was that close to him was when we were back home in Connecticut. How would you describe the difference in grieving between your mom, your dad and you? Yeah. I, so my mom and dad definitely grieved differently. My mom wanted to basically just be left alone. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She didn't want to be around people. 
but I think that that just speaks to their personalities. My dad is very much the extrovert type of person. He's he walks into the room and he wants to talk to every single person who's there. And, and that, that's just his normal personality. And so uh, after my brother was killed, he wanted to talk to people. That was comforting to him is, is being able to talk to people and, and talk about my brother and talk about what happened. And that brought some sort of comfort and peace to him. And so that's what he wanted to do. And my mom started getting a little, maybe a little upset with him. I don't know if that's even the right word, but she was like, just, just stop it stop talking to all these people. I like, let's just go inside. Let's just be left alone. And let's, let's not continue this conversation. And so there was definitely a difference there. When I got home, my parents picked me up at the airport. My wife was there and, and our, our newborn son was, was all with us. And uh, we went from the airport to my parents' house. And when we pulled down the street, there were news vans lining up and down the street uh, from all the local television, radio, newspaper companies, they're all there. And my blood started to boil. I was like, these people are, are just vultures looking to pick apart a story for their own benefit, their own gain. I hated the fact that they were there. I wanted, I wanted nothing to do with them. And just like the way I was in at the airport in Atlanta, where I just wanted to be invisible and just walk straight through and not talk to anybody. I felt the same way with them. I, I, I wanted nothing to do with them. But when we Got to got out of the car in my parents' driveway. Uh, there was a, a public affairs officer from the army who was there, and he said, "You know, that's completely our right. We don't need to talk to any of these people if we don't want to. But just know that they're going to run a story about my brother, one way or the other, with or without us. And if we want people to know who my brother was, if we want them to actually get like a real story with real information, as opposed to just." talking to some random person in a grocery store parking lot saying, oh yeah, this is a tragedy. It's so sad and having a 30 second soundbite. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. If we want it to be a real story with real substance, then we need to go talk to them. And it was at that point that I realized that this wasn't about me and my feelings anymore. This was about my brother. He's not here to tell his story anymore. And it's up to us to tell it for him. So I started to change my mindset as far as talking to other people. To be perfectly honest, I don't know that I would be sitting here talking to you today about this topic if it wasn't for that conversation with that public affairs officer who who said, you know, someone needs to be able to tell his story. And I was like, yeah. And that someone is is me. It's us. My my family needs to tell his story because nobody else knew him the way we did. And we need to be out out there telling his story. And Stephen wasn't married, right? He was engaged, okay. um, but but no, he was not married. Um, and so uh, his his fiance was and still is a very close to our, our family. We felt absolutely terrible for her. I mean, her whole life was ahead of her. You know, she had, you know, visions of getting married. They, they had planned the wedding date and everything the, the, the year later. They had all these plans already made and they would have been great parents, you know, if, if God was if God bless them with having, uh, being able to have children, they would have been great at it, but yeah, she, that got ripped away from her too. And that, that was, that was a tragedy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And she's more on the, I don't want to say shy, but more on the the quiet side where she, she's not as outgoing and wanting to, uh, have these sort of conversations as much, uh, you know, she'll, she'll do it, but not, not as much as, as maybe I, I, or my father would, would do. 
so you know you don't hear from her quite as much but um you know i, I just kind of felt like it was it was my job now to continue telling this story you went through a period of i don't know how i don't remember how long this period was scott but of anger of depression of a lot of drinking it really affected your marriage what happened there and when did that start and and what did you do about it i think that day that my brother was killed when we started taking fire from that village that anger that was building up inside of me i think i just hang, hung on to that i i just wanted to be angry for some reason I, like that just felt like the way i was going to grieve was through anger I, I was angry at the situation i was angry that my brother got ripped away at 25 years old he got ripped away from us um he had his whole life ahead of him and it, it got cut short that just angered me and I found myself getting angry at every little stupid thing that possibly could happen. You know, I had a young son at home and young kids, for people who aren't parents, guess what? They're messy. They make messes. <laughs> They're not the, the, the most careful individuals that are out there. And when my son would spill something, I would flip out and I would just be yelling and screaming and get just, and it's like, he's, like one and a half, two years old, whatever. It's like, this isn't right. This isn't how a father should be acting towards his kid like that. This is stupid that I'm acting this way. It was every little thing. I was just getting so unnecessarily upset about all these things. And it, it just built it up and it wasn't getting any better. And especially with the drinking, I, I would, uh, I still wasn't sleeping very well. The, the sleeping pills ran out and I, needed help getting to sleep. And so I found myself drinking more and more to basically just make myself pass out to, to go to sleep. You don't get the best sleep when you're pass out drunk. And then when you wake up, you're all hung over. And so then I would be drinking caffeine or coffee and energy drinks and all that kind of stuff to wake myself back up and get myself going throughout the day. But then that, that took place later and later in the day. And that screwed up my sleep even more. And it just became this vicious cycle where I was drinking more and more to get myself to fall asleep. And then I was having more and more caffeine to wake myself up in the morning. And it just was a terrible vicious cycle that I found myself in. And uh, because I wasn't sleeping well, I was, my mood was affected even more. And I, I was getting even more angry and more frustrated and more agitated uh, every single day. It got worse and worse and worse. And I think that you weren't exercising I, either, were you? Oh God, no. I, I was, I was doing nothing to help myself physically or mentally, quite frankly, at that point, I, I was just a complete wreck. As a matter of fact, there was, uh, I was still in the military. And so I, I would go into our, our training on, on the weekend. One time I, I walked in and somebody said, Oh, have, have you been, have been working out? It looks like you, you've, you've bulked up a bit. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, no, I'm just, I'm just a fat piece of crap right now because I have done nothing as far as exercise since, mm -hmm. since returning. It was probably about six months after getting back. I, I had done no sort of exercise and with all the drinking and, and, you know, not eating well and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I just, I started to blow up and, and it was not the best thing for me physically or mentally, quite frankly. But yeah, the day that, that I, I, I feel like all of this just kind of blew up was, was when my, my dog uh, was in our, our bedroom or my, my wife in my bedroom. And we had these white carpets, like brand new white carpets in this bedroom. And our bathroom had a tile floor. 
and our dog got was sick she she was about to throw up and she was standing right on the edge of the bathroom and the uh the bedroom with the white carpet and six inches one way she would have thrown up on the tile floor in the bathroom nice and easy to clean up no problem right well she didn't do that and she threw up right on the carpet and i just lost it and i'm screaming at this dog like she's gonna understand me anyways right and i'm like i'm gonna have to get a steam cleaner to clean this it's probably gonna stain the carpet it's you know i'm, I'm yelling i'm screaming i'm just a complete maniac like if you're like <laughs> watching me do this you'd be like dude what is your problem my parents my neighbors you? see me do that with my dog all the time out back it's <laughs> got to be embarrassing <laughs> but but this was this was beyond like anything like any normal frustration it was beyond that I, it was like i wasn't myself anymore and i started to realize that and my wife came in and she was like you need to get some help because this can't keep happening and I was like, I, I know I get it. And the next morning I, I called uh, the vet center, which is affiliated through the VA, but the, for counseling services. And I called them and I was like, I need some help. Something isn't right with me. Um, this is my situation. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Absolutely. We'll get you in. You know, and I, I think, I don't think it was that day. I think it was like the day after or something like that. I, I had an appointment and I went in, but I mean, phone call was such a huge weight off my shoulders. It made me feel like I don't have to carry around the weight of the world on my own shoulders anymore. I, there's going to be somebody else who they're not necessarily going to carry it for me, but they're going to show me how to carry it in a way that I can handle it. And I was like, there, there's hope now for me. There, there's something there that's going to help me. And well, it didn't cure me like overnight. I'm not saying like this was some magical phone call, like this receptionist who took my my name down and stuff had some magical words that she said, like, that's not it at all. But it made me feel like there was some hope here. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I knew I was suffering. I knew I was not the, the person I wanted to be, but I could see the path to get to where yeah. I wanted to be. And so, so that, that was helpful. Stephen was killed in August of 2010. When was this? When did your point come where you said, OK, I've got to have help? And you made the call. February or March of 2011. So roughly, let's say about six months or so after. Okay. Somewhere around there. I forget the exact time frame, but it was around that, that time period. It it just took its toll on me. I I was, I was just not. And on your wife. And on my wife and, and God bless her. She was a saint for sticking with me through all of this because I was not easy to deal with. She knew I was going to be dealing with some stuff. I wasn't going to be the same person as I was when I left. And, and she was great with helping me work through things. Um, but there's only so much she could do. I mean, she was, she was a, a new mother. She's trying to figure out how to be a mom herself. I I was brand new to being a father. Uh, my son was born just a, a few weeks before I left for Afghanistan. Uh, and I was off training most of that time. Uh, so I, before I left, I think I had about 10 days with him. Uh, and then I came home and now all of a sudden I have a nine month old son and I have to figure out how to be a dad. And it's like, I, I don't know the first thing about being a dad. I, I, I've only changed a handful of diapers ever in my entire life. What do I do? Mm-hmm. How do I, how do I get this thing to stop crying? How do I, how do I change a diaper? How do I do any of this stuff? Like I, I didn't know. And, and plus I was dealing with all the grief and everything else. I was, I was just so overwhelmed with everything. I, I was just not in a great place uh, mentally. So from the phone call, I mean, what all are some specific things you've done now to 
get out of that dark spot that you were in? Yeah. So the initial counseling that I had was really just your kind of traditional talk therapy. You go in, you, it's, it was me and a, a guy, the counselor that was in there. And we, we just talked things out. You know, I, I told him what was going on with me, what was bothering me. And we talked about it. To me, it was helpful because I was able to talk through things and get someone else's perspective on what I was going through. And it helped me to understand that what I was going through was not abnormal. Like I, I wasn't weird or strange for feeling the way I felt like it was okay. It was just, what am I doing with my anger? How am I, how am I dealing with that anger? And, and he helped me kind of process through some of that anger. And you know, I forget some of the exact things that we we did, but he helped me with, with that anger. Uh, he helped me with not relying on alcohol all the time to get to sleep. You know, he, he helped me uh, with that kind of stuff, like just walking me through what I needed to do. Um, I, I kind of just needed somebody there who had a level head who could just be like, no, don't do that. that that's not going to help you get out and go exercise. Don't be drinking all night long to get yourself to fall asleep or, or whatever. Like those kind of things, like seems kind of simple and easy to say, but for me, it was really hard to implement. And so I needed someone there to, to help me out with that. And I, I did that for about a year and a half, two years, somewhere around there, um, where, where I was going to him. I think it was every week I, I was going in to, to talk with him. And it got me to a place where I felt like I, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I felt like I could probably finish the rest of this off on my own. I felt like I was maybe 80% of the way there and um, back to my, my old self. And I could probably get back to where I needed to be. Um, and so I stopped going to counseling. That was right around the time that I, I moved from Connecticut out to where I am now in Arizona. And I was like, you know, what? I'll, I'll be fine. I don't need more counseling. I don't need to go talk to more people about any of this stuff. I'll, I'll just be fine. And I was, I was okay for a little while. I, I wasn't drinking as, as much as I used to. I, I never like completely quit drinking, but I just, I, I wasn't using it as a crutch anymore. I was, it was just kind of your, your social drinking, go, you know, having a glass of wine with dinner or something like that. It, it wasn't like to get blackout drunk. But then I, I started noticing a couple of years later that the anger was coming back and the depression and the the guilt and the shame and everything else that I was feeling before was all starting to come back. And it felt like it was all collapsing around me. Like everything was awful. I just felt like nothing was going right. Nothing was good in my world. I had three great kids. I had still the same wife I, that, that I was married to. Everything on, on paper, like on the outside looking in, everything looked like it should be going great. I had a business that, that I was running that was was going going pretty well. Uh, every everything that I was doing seemed like it was working, but inside I felt awful. I was depressed all the time. I started drinking more and more. I was getting frustrated. I was getting angry. I was slipping back into the mm -hmm. type of person that I used to be. I started recognizing that in myself, and I was like, I don't want to go back to that, be that guy again. I, I can't do that. Uh, I can't be that person for my kids or my wife. I, that's just not acceptable. And so I went back into uh, therapy and tried different types of therapy to to treat the PTSD and, and the grief and everything else that I was going through. And something I learned in that process is that mental health is a lot has a lot of similarities and a lot of uh, dissimilarities with your physical health. You know, if you, if you don't 
keep up on your physical health, your, your diet, your exercise, things are going to start to collapse. And it's the same thing with your, your mental health, but where it's dissimilar it is like, if you were to break a bone, like you break your arm or something like that, you go to the doctor, you get, get it put in a cast, you get it set and everything. A few weeks later, you get the cast taken off and your arm's good to go. It's, you know, good as new, uh, pretty much. I mean, yeah, sure. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it, for the most part, you're going to be able to do the things that you used to be able to do. And you don't have to go back to the doctor to, for follow-ups on that arm years and years later. It, it's going to be fine. But with your mental health, it's not necessarily true. You're, you may need to go back and have some follow-ups and some checkups to make sure that you're you're on the right path, to make sure that you're not slipping back to some of the old habits that you were in and and doing the things that you used to be doing. So you're saying even if you don't think there's an issue, go yeah. and have a checkup. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, if, if you're walking around and everything's fine in, in life and, and you're happy, you're waking up, you're, you're happy to be alive. You're, you're, you're happy with your, your life's choices and your, your family life is good and your, your job is good and everything just seems like it's good. Like, no, I mean, you don't need to go and waste your time or the, the therapist time and in, in doing that, that kind of stuff. But when you start noticing even like little small things creeping up where it's like, I never used to be frustrated at this one little thing, but here I am. I find myself getting really frustrated at this. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well there might be something going on there. Or if, if you find yourself in a, in a situation where like I used to, I used to love playing golf. I, I used to do it as often as I possibly could. And now I'm kind of just like, eh. I don't really care. It's fine. It's, it's all right. I'll do it, but it's not like I'm looking forward to it all week, waiting for the weekend so I can go do it. And when you start finding yourself losing interest in, in things that you used to really enjoy, uh, that could be a sign of, of depression. It could be a sign of, uh, things that are just not going right with you. And you, you might need to address some of those things and, and you might need some professional help with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just kind of pay attention to yourself. And I'm not saying everyone needs to go to therapy all the time. That's almost like saying you need to go to your, to a physical doctor appointment once a week to, to make sure that your, your physical health is on, on par. Like no, once a year is fine. Once every couple of years, that, that, that's probably fine. Um, you know, with your mental health, you know, if you notice something's wrong, like go address it. Don't just sit there and wait for it to get better. Cause it may not get better on yeah. its own. And then that may build into something else. And that's not what you want to have happen. You know, you don't, you don't want to end up becoming a different person, getting depressed and, and angry and all these other things that might go on because you're too proud to go ask for help. Yeah. You talk about a lot of that with your podcast. Uh, you want to talk about drive on or just tell us about drive on and, and what, what all you've got going on, Scott? Yeah, sure. So the Drive On podcast is really focused on military veterans and service members and their families to deal with the issues that they typically are going through. So things like PTSD, uh, substance abuse, job career transition. When, when you're getting out of the military, how, how do you find a new job? Education resources, um, other other resources and, and things like that that are available to the, the veterans that they may just not know about. And so we, we talk to other veterans to share their stories of what they've gone through and how they figured their way out of whatever it was that they were going through. And then we talk to people from organizations that are out there helping veterans that 
the veterans may not even know exist some of these organizations. We all know about the VA and what they do, but veterans may not know about some of these nonprofits that are offering these innovative, unique ways to treat things like PTSD, for example. And I'm picking on PTSD because it's kind of a common thing that a lot of people talk about. There's a lot of other issues that that people uh, address through their their nonprofits and everything. But you know, if you don't know that these things exist, you're not going to know to go look for them either. So uh, I try to talk about all of these different options so that way the veterans who might be struggling, if they're listening to it, great, they can they can get the help that they need. But I also have a lot of their loved ones listen to the podcast as well because they're like, I, I don't know what to do with this guy or, or gal. I don't, I don't know what to do with them right now. Uh, they're They're not going to get help. They're struggling. It's very clear that they're struggling and I need to help them out however I can. And so they listen to the podcast and they get ideas and they they can be the ones who plant the seed of those ideas in these people's heads. And, and hopefully that grows into something that that helps them out in the future. So that's that's really the gist of it. It's really just giving hope to the people who may feel like all hope is lost. You're doing a great job over 200 episodes. It's one of mine that I've that I have subscribed to now for probably a few months. You can find it anywhere. I think everywhere podcasts are available, it's there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere that you can listen to podcasts, you can go to driveonpodcast.com. It has all the episodes there, obviously, but also all the links to all the different places that you might listen to podcasts. But but you can search for it wherever you listen to wherever you listen to this podcast. Just search for Drive On Podcast, and you you should be able to find it there. Are you a one man show? Do you do everything? Do you do the editing, I do. And mixing the music, and all that? Okay. Yeah, I do. I do all of that stuff. I I did get some help from my wife and and actually my mom at one point. They were doing the transcripts. They were helping me out with that, and and that became a lot of work. And uh, especially this past year, I, I moved to two episodes a week, and that was just more work than they were able to handle. And uh, I, I found a found a program that actually transcribed the uh, the audio from the podcast automatically. And it does a reasonably good job at doing it accurately. And there's a lot of programs out there that, that do it and it's just not all that accurate. And so a lot of what my my mom and my my wife were doing were basically just going in and editing all the crap that was wrong in the automated transcripts. But but this does it pretty accurately, um, and it saves me a ton of time as far as the the editing goes. So yeah, I, okay. I've been using that for for the last few months now, and it's it's really just been a a blessing to have that in, in my corner. <laughs> well, you speak clearer than me. You know, the, these programs don't do well with southern accents. So I'm I'm not I'm not ready to go that route yet. <laughs> you know, I've I've actually had a few people on my podcast who have had uh various accents. I've had people from uh Australia who were on. They they clearly have a, a much different accent than than we have. Mm-hmm. And uh it was actually able to do a pretty good job with transcribing their their wow. stuff. So wow. so it, it worked pretty well. Um yeah, I think you might be, actually be surprised. Yeah, I've heard. I've talked to someone else who does that, so I, I might need to step up my game with with Patriot to the core. <laughs> yeah, Scott. What about one last question um, about about Stephen? Anyway, how often do you have this inclination to like? I want to tell Stephen that. Oh, you know, this funny thing happened, and you know, how often does that still come about, even after twelve years? Yeah, I mean, it's been been a while, and every once in a while, it still happens where where I'm doing something or, or especially when I'm with my kids and they, they do something that's impressive or whatever. My, my brother was a huge sports fan. It didn't matter the sport. If there was two teams or two players or, or whatever, people 
playing against each other for any reason. Didn't matter. It could have been watching people play ping pong. Didn't matter. He he loved watching and, and enjoying the the sport, the competition of it. So my kids are all a little bit older now, and they're they're all into sports, uh, you know, baseball, softball, things like that. And uh, when they're out on the field and they make one of those incredible plays that you're just like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Sometimes I'm like, man, I, I wish he was here to see that because yeah. he would be so yeah impressed. He would be so proud of them for you know all the all the effort and hard work and stuff that they put into it. But then reality sinks in, and I'm like, you know, he's not here. Yeah, and that kind of sucks. Yeah, you know, one thing that got me was the first wedding that I went to after my brother Mark was killed, and my parents were there, so these were people that we knew, and they were friends with my brother. Yeah. And I remember just seeing all the groomsmen standing there and it's like, man, because you know, Mark wasn't married. It's like, man, Mark's not going to get married. He should be, he should kind of be there. You know, they were all wearing a bracelet, you know, kind of in uh, honor of Mark had his name on it. Right. But that was one of the first event that probably very different than all the memorial services that we had and, and continue to have through the military. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something that, that gets me too is just thinking about all the life that, my brother missed out on getting married, having kids, the ups and the downs of life. He, he missed out on a lot of things and a lot of good things. And in some ways it, it kind of kills me thinking about it. Like why, why couldn't he be here to experience that stuff? And it, it just sometimes eats me up when I, when I think about all that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. From my standpoint, you're doing great work and you're honoring him and you've got your children and they're, they know about him. What else would you like to say, Scott, in closing about podcast, about the book, about the organization, you know, when you have the golf tournament and all that? Yeah, we, we set up a memorial fund in my brother's name. It's called the the Sergeant Stephen Deluzio Memorial Fund. And uh, we we set that up to provide scholarships to kids who going into college, obviously, and, and um, you know, people who are basically exhibiting some of the values that that my brother uh, exhibited selfless service uh, things like that uh, we we look for in the people that we we provide these scholarships to um, you know strong leadership skills and, and stuff like that so we we had a golf tournament for the first I want to say it was like five or six years after my brother was killed raised a ton of money uh, doing all of that will enable us to continue giving these scholarships out for for years to come now and you know, really, it's it's just another way to keep his name and his memory alive is through this foundation where where these kids are are able to go to school. You know, it's it's not a, a full ride scholarship. It, you know, it's a you know partial scholarship, but the, they're able to get this education partially paid for through the foundation that that we have set up. And so that that's just a way to keep his name alive. Uh, and some of these kids now uh, who are going to school were just so young at the time that uh that he was killed like it to me it just makes me feel super old think even thinking mm -hmm. about it but yeah it's good to to know that his name is is still out there and, and people are still talking about him and thinking about him yeah i mean the book surviving son i it i really really enjoyed it and i read it cover to cover got a lot of ink in it from me a lot of notes and so you did a great job and the editing who all helped you edit did you say your wife uh, that, and mom or who all was that? Yeah, that, that was really just my my family. Yeah, my wife, my my mom, my dad helped a little bit. You know, I, I took a stab at it. I, I ran through the, the first draft. I, I ran it past them. Uh, they took a look at it and 
marked it all up and uh and I, I made some edits and we 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 went a little bit of back and forth trying to trying to get that cleaned up and you know but at the end of the day i i think you know we we had a pretty good teamwork going on as far as the editing goes and uh i was a little hesitant to be real vocal that i i wrote a book about this because uh if any of my high school teachers english teachers ever found out that i wrote a book they'd probably drop dead of a heart attack because it would be so surprising to them that I actually was able to write a book, but, uh, but, um, but it actually, it came out, uh, I, I, I think pretty well. And the feedback that I've received has been, been pretty good. So, so yeah, surviving son was a, uh, you know, passion project for me, but, it, but it turned out, I think pretty good. That's right. And, you know, you just reminded me, I, I'm a big, big pusher of hey review, leave a review. And I don't know that I left a review yet on it. So I will, I absolutely will. I, Cause I'm, as a having a book myself, I know how important those are and how they're appreciated. Well, hey, God bless you, your family and your parents. And I know we didn't talk a lot about them, but uh, you know, I've seen my parents and the effects it's had on on them losing their youngest child. They've never been the same. They grieved and grieve differently too, uh, like your parents. And so I just feel so much pain and and sorrow and empathy for people who lose a child, for sure. And yeah, um, so the the worst thing I think for any parent is is to have to go through that. I couldn't even imagine having three kids myself having to go through that that experience. That yeah, is yeah. not something any parent should have to go through. Thank goodness you're there. You're you are the surviving son, and I encourage people to read the book because it it really is great. It's a great perspective from from a, a gold star brother and and the the challenges and struggles that you went through too. And thanks, man. I appreciate you, Scott. Well, I appreciate this opportunity. Thanks again.